Then on further reflection, as uh, time went by, Jung realised that the unconscious was not a product of the personal ego, but it had a collective dimension and did not belong to individual persons. He then began to postulate that things work the other way around. The ego is a creation of the unconscious and it emerges from it like an island thrust up from the ocean. from the third in a series of talks given to the C.G. Jung Society of Melbourne by David Tacey on Jung's depth psychology, developing a relationship with mystery. And welcome to the Society's podcast, I'm Ariel Moy. The Jung Society offers a space for the exploration and development of Jungian ideas and practice. We offer talks on the third Friday evening of every month, as well as courses and workshops, a Jungian library, a newsletter and discussion groups. Please visit our website at jungsocietymelbourne.com or our Facebook page. David is Emeritus Professor of Literature at La Trobe University and has authored more than a dozen books including Gods and Diseases, Making Sense of Our Physical and Mental Wellbeing, How to Read Jung and his latest book, The Post-Secular Sacred. He grew up in Alice Springs, Australia. In today's talk, Soul and Earth, The Impact of Place Upon the Psyche, David invites us to consider the fundamentals of our assumptions about consciousness. Situating us at the beginning of the third stage of consciousness, he suggests we've moved from a pre-modern belief in all things possessing a soul, through a modern assumption that the human mind can be the only source of consciousness, to a post-rational awareness of forces or energies present in both psyche and matter, humanity and earth. David explores Jung's later idea that while the human psyche certainly has an impact on the world, the soul of the world, that is the collective unconscious in humanity and the earth, similarly has an impact on human experiencing. We hope you enjoy David's talk. I'm really excited by this topic because it's a topic which, um, as Annette said, is very close to my heart. Having grown up in Central Australia and having felt the influence of the land as a, um, as a personal life experience, I'm always really excited to try and work this concept of how the land impacts on the psyche. Now, I don't have all the answers, but at least I've got some questions. So, here we go. Does Earth have spirit or soul? To start with that question. Now, the question might sound odd to some ears, and materialists might dismiss it out of hand as absurd. But it's a question that more people are asking, especially those who are interested in the depths of matter and the mystery of the natural world in particular those who are seeking a spiritual basis for the new ecological awareness are asking this question, as well as those seeking to build connections between contemporary consciousness and the earth-based religions of indigenous peoples, including our own Aboriginal peoples. By the way, I never say Koori because coming from the Northern Territory as I do, 
The word Kuri isn't used there at all, and the Aboriginal people don't like to be called Kuris. So, um, unfortunately uh, for you, because uh, here in Victoria that is a word often used. So, Indigenous people or Aboriginal people will be my terms. Now, the notion that the earth has spirit could be mis a mistaken formulation or an error of perception. Perhaps we could put it the other way around. Spirit has earth. And matter might be seen as the finite dimension of something infinite and spiritual. In other words, not that matter contains spirit, but let's reverse that, flip it over. Let's have matter in spirit itself. That's the word used by St. Paul in his letters to the Corinthians. He calls it panentheism, a Greek word, because Paul wrote in Greek, of course. And, and panentheism means all in God, or all in spirit, if you don't like the word God. So from that perspective, and I think Jung is getting very close to that perspective in his thinking, so if this is true, if all is in spirit rather than having spirit within itself, then Western thinking about the world, based as it is on a dualism of earth versus spirit, is rendered utterly false at the outset. Because I think at the heart of Jung's thinking about this topic is a monistic worldview. That is to say, and which is very close to the Aboriginal worldview, Spirit and matter are simply two aspects of the same reality. It's not as if they are actually poles apart. In his essay on Paracelsus, the late alchemist and uh, early physician uh, in the history of medicine, Jung asserted, and I quote, Nature is not matter only. She is also spirit. I like that she bit there. Nature is not matter only. She is also spirit. Were that not so, the only source of spirit would be human reason. And he's rejecting that. So he's thinking that spirit might be given with reality rather than simply a product of human consciousness, which is how many, say, existentialists and humanists might read spirit as a kind of a byproduct of human consciousness. In a really good book with a sort of unfortunate title called The Earth Has a Soul, because I think that very title, some of you might have seen that book by Meredith Sabini. It's a very good book, but, and I understand why she, she wrote it, but uh, as I say, The Earth Has a Soul, that, that very concept might be wrong from the beginning. Meredith Sabini, a Jungian analyst in San Francisco, says matter is the tangible exterior of things and spirit, the invisible interior of things. And I like that very much. So that's a book called The Earth Has a Soul. Now I'd call this vision radical spiritual imminence. Radical spiritual imminence. And it challenges the typical materialist views which sees matter as devoid of spirit on the one hand and then the traditional metaphysical view in the West, which places spirit above matter and beyond the world, on the other hand. Now, Jung arrived at this non-dualistic position by way of his intuitive investigations into the structure and dynamics of the psyche. At first, Jung began with the Freudian assumption 
that the individual has an unconscious and the unconscious contains elements rejected by the ego and suppressed by conventional morality. Then on further reflection, as uh, time went by, Jung realised that the unconscious was not a product of the personal ego, but it had a collective dimension and did not belong to individual persons. He then began to postulate that things work the other way around. The ego is a creation of the unconscious and it emerges from it like an island thrust up from the ocean. I used that image a couple of weeks ago here. So Jung adopted the view that something infinite and as yet unknown creates and shapes and even guides the finite realm and that consciousness is a product of the unconscious. He reversed the chain of causality that had governed Freud's thinking. Freud felt that the conscious creates the unconscious through the mechanism of repression. So, Jung developed an interest, of course, in Neoplatonic philosophy. And in Neoplatonic philosophy, it played a very big role, not only in medieval thinking, but also in the thinking of the alchemists that was of great interest to Jung. One of the slogans or mottos of alchemy is this, the largest part of the soul is outside the body. Isn't that great? The largest part of the soul is outside the body. I love that because in normal consciousness, we always talk about the soul being in us. Uh, it's a kind of a presumption on our part to think that the soul's in us. Why don't we think, as Plato thought, that we are in the soul? We are in the soul. The soul is not just confined to human dimensions. There can be a soul dimension of the whole world. And, of course, in Neoplatonic philosophy, it's called the anima mundi. The anima mundi is a beautiful phrase. The world soul in Latin. In English, it becomes the world soul. In the writings of uh, W.B. Yeats, the Irish poet, he calls it Spiritus Mundi. Those of you who know his famous poem, The Second Coming, he actually talks about Spiritus Mundi. So that simply means the spirit of the world. So the human psyche could be one aspect of the psyche of the world, is the way Jung is thinking. The human psyche could be one aspect of the psyche of the world, just as the anima in men and women, the soul dimension, could be one aspect of the anima mundi, the soul of the whole world. And that doesn't make us feel so lonely then. I mean, it's a beautiful concept, very poetic idea. We are actually living all the time, but without knowing it, in the soul of the world. We're walking through the soul of the world as we journey through life. So this was a great shock to many of the scientists who worked with Jung because they had the idea that the psyche is in the human body. Now when we say that, it's actually purely metaphorical. I mean, if you get on the surgeon's uh, couch and he starts hacking away, he's never going to find a soul in our body. You know, it's a purely metaphorical construct that there's a soul in our body. And yet we take that construct very literally as if it is actually literally true. And much of Jungian thought 
exacerbates the problem, I, I suppose, to some extent by continually talking about the inner life as if it's actually like somehow, you know, behind my asthma at the moment or behind my asthmatic lungs or something. By the inner life, we don't really mean it in the sense in which it's popularly known. It, it, we just mean the deeper life, which is a depth shared by everybody and a depth shared by everything. And so to actually own that constantly as our own depth, our own inwardness, is a kind of a form of um, individualism and a form of consumerism. We're consuming an individual concept of the soul. So in his thinking about mind and earth, Jung invited us to consider what he called the thonic portion of the psyche. Thonic is spelled C-H-T-H. O-N-I-C. It's a Greek word, and it comes from the Greek word thonos, meaning the depths of the earth. Thonos in ancient Greek, the depths of the earth. It's a portion not immediately accessible, but expressed indirectly through symbolism and archetypal configurations. In a later phase of his career, Jung introduced the notion of the psychoid. That was his, virtually his last concept, the psychoid. And uh, unless you've read quite a lot of Jung, you wouldn't necessarily have come up to that yet. But if you read his, his late work on synchronicity, the psychoid is a level of mind where matter and psyche interpenetrate and become one substance or energy. In fact, there's no word for it because it's neither substance nor energy, having transcended both conditions. So he was constantly deepening and revising his views about these things, which is why, to some extent, he's really hard to track. He didn't just start off with the roadmap. He actually created the roadmap as he made the journey. In the 1920s, he postulated that human behavior and emotions were impacted by the psychic influence of the earth and its laws. That was in his uh, essay of 1927 called Mind and Earth. It's in Collected Works, Volume 10, what I'll be talking about uh, much to a great extent this evening. Now, Jung's argument begs many questions, not only about whether the human psyche has a phonic or earthly dimension, but about uh, whether the earth has a psychic or animated dimension. Now, when I say animated, I'm using that word very carefully. It, of course, comes from anima, to anima, to have anima is to animate. So if something's animated, it's then full of soul, animated. To the amazement of some readers, uh, you can imagine how ahead of his time he was with these concepts in the 1920s. He says that the conditioning of the mind by the earth imposes its own laws and, and influence on human behavior. It must have sound incredible to Freud. He must have thought, oh, I knew all along this guy was a lunatic, and now it actually proves it. Now he's actually saying that the earth has some psychological impact on the human mind. Jung's reflections on mind and earth are scattered throughout his collected writings, but are especially located in, in these two essays, Mind and Earth of 1927 and The Complications of American Psychology of 1930. And as I mentioned, both are in volume 10. They're extraordinary essays in some ways, because while Jung makes the most mystical of claims about psyche and earth, 
He does so with the appearance of being cool-headed and even scientific to all appearances. He speaks of his findings. He uses that marvellous word that scientists use, my findings, about the influence of Earth on the mind, whereas perhaps possibly a more humble uh, statement might have been my, my speculations or my intuitions, but Jung calls them his findings, as if he were delivering kind of research material at a scientific meeting. He claims that he is not indulging in any psychological mysticism, end quote, not indulging in any psychological mysticism. That's for the benefit of Freud, I think, who felt that he was indulging in psychological mysticism, while indulging in it all the time, in fact, at one level. So some might see this as sleight of hand or deceptive, but a more sympathetic approach, which I have, might concede that Jung is attempting to bring very complicated and subtle matters into the realm of thought. He is concerned that the relations between mind and earth are often felt but rarely discussed because we have no language to speak of them. This topic is generally regarded as too difficult to deal with, but Jung wants to bring it into discourse, as Jacques Derrida would say, bring it into discourse, into the interests of making the unconscious conscious. Now, in discussing this topic, Jung wants to appear credible and scientific. He's reluctant to make wild assertions about the nature of ultimate reality, and he requests at the start of his um, speculations that we adopt a metaphorical or as-if approach to the topic, as if the earth has an impact on our psyche, as if the earth has a psychological dimension of its own. And this as-if dimension under, uh, under sort of pins virtually everything he says. But he wants to kind of, in a sense, say it's more than metaphorical as well. So this is the kind of curious thing. He says it's an as-if approach and then declares in the same essay, and I quote, my subject of earth and mind is anything but a metaphor. And end quote, is anything but a metaphor. So he wants it to be a metaphor, but he doesn't want it to be seen as merely metaphorical. In other words, having no substance and just being some kind of, you know, imaginative kind of fantasy. So this is, this is one of the, the difficult things, to maintain this as-if dimension while understanding that he's all the time, I think, working intuitively with concepts that are almost impossible to dress up as science. And in his work on the relationship between mind and earth, Jung becomes impatient and frustrated. He cannot make himself understood about the power of earth, as he calls it, and its hold over us. So the reader can either reject his reflections as silly, if you're in that kind of frame of mind, or suspend judgment and enter into this journey of speculation with Jung giving him the benefit of the doubt, which of course is how I read him. Perhaps we can reduce the sense that he's being deceitful or forcing his case by speaking about this kind of twofold approach. He wants it to be metaphorical and yet he wants it to be suggestive of something real at the same time. So, in speaking of the sway or power of earth over mind, Jung says he's not talking about the influence of the external environment or the physical environment 
on consciousness, not about what he calls the banal facts of sense perception and conscious adaptation to the environment, but about things archaic and elemental, phonic and primordial. He sums up the influence of earth over mind by referring to the night religion of primitives and children. It's a bit unfortunate, but Jung wasn't around in our day. We wouldn't dare talk about Aboriginal people as primitives. But Jung was writing this stuff in the 1920s when they didn't think twice about using that kind of language. So he says, and I quote, what I call night religion is the magical form of religion the meaning and purpose of which is intercourse with the dark powers, the devils, the witches, the magicians, the spirits, just as the childish fairy tale is a phylogenetic repetition of the ancient night religions, so the childish fear of the dark is a re-enchantment of primitive psychology, the re-enchantment of primitive psychology. Now, that's uh, the end of Jung. Jung's quote. Now, this ancient religion with its dark powers, witches, spirits, and, and magicians expresses the forces of the earth as they represent themselves to the mind. So Jung argues that we should not take these figures literally, that we need to separate the forces themselves from what he calls, in an unfortunate phrase, their infantile forms. <laughs> their infantile forms. Um, try telling primordial peoples these days that their forms are infantile and see how they respond to that. But again, you know, Jung was, as I say, a man of his time and that's part of the language he used. Jung treats witches, demons, spirits, etc. as secondary personifications of something more primary. But no less terrifying background. He's never sure what the more primary thing is. But when mythologies talk about witches and demons and spirits, Jung's Jung has kind of got an ambivalent relationship to that. He's thinking, yep, there's definitely forces at work in, in reality. It's a complex world. It's a complex cosmos. But he's scientific, with his scientific hat on, he's not believing a word of it because he's just reading it as some kind of metaphorical statement. So that's one of the fascinating things about Jung is that he always has this double vision he keeps saying in, in his works on uh, mind and earth, the primary reality itself is irrepresentable and can only be known through its symbolic representations. We can only know ultimate reality through symbols and myths and metaphors. We can't actually get a direct connection, Jung doesn't feel, to the infinite itself. Because the infinite is infinite, and being infinite, it doesn't have representation. So as soon as we attribute representation to the infinite, we are already interpreting it rather than offering a description of it. This, by the way, is where Jung and Derrida are on exactly the same wavelength. They both believe that all mythologies, all religions, all fairy tales, all stories are interpretations of reality rather than descriptions of reality. And so the job of the analyst is to try and decode those interpretations and not take them too literally, but give them the respect they deserve. Because as he says in this essay, the symbol and the image is the best possible expression of something as yet unknown. And then there's the expectation, well, maybe we'll eventually know what this 
reality is. But Jung doesn't feel we will because the infinite is infinite and therefore beyond our knowing. Now if I can just speculate a bit about, I think Jung suggests there are three kinds of stages of consciousness. And I think he feels that we're at the third stage and we're not too sure how to go about delineating and describing the stage that we're currently in. The first stage I would call pre-modern literalism and supernaturalism. Pre-modern literalism and supernaturalism. The second stage I would call modern disbelief and scepticism, which we have plenty of in today's world. In fact, we're drowning in it, and that's why it's a spiritual wasteland today, because we've got far too much disbelief and scepticism. And the third stage, which is neither the pre-rational literalism nor the modern disbelief, is what I would call a post-rational reappropriation of cosmic forces. And I think that's really the stage that Jung is trying to get at in his work. It's as if he's writing for a civilization that doesn't yet exist. I actually think Jung is a very prophetic writer. He's writing for the future because we don't really understand him now. And I think we will further on. And as time uh, passes, uh, Jung's work becomes more and more uh, apparent and more clear, as particularly as um, postmodern science and uh, nuclear physics develops more understanding about the nature of reality. So let me just uh, give you a kind of picture of what these three stages are like. In the first stage, spirits of the earth are treated as objective forces out there forces requiring the intercessions and interventions of shaman priests and witch doctors. The first stage, of course, is called by anthropologists animism and is generally represented by them as irrational and anthropomorphic. So quite typically, you have a, you know, a tribal group somewhere in New Guinea or in Central Australia, in um, New Zealand or Africa, or in North America, and they, they're talking about forces at work out there, and the typical anthropologist from Oxford or Cambridge or something comes along, he doesn't believe a word, or she, doesn't believe a word they're saying, but finds it fascinating, <laughs> you know, because this is the way that culture works. So generally, the anthropologist or sociologist is in what Jung would classify, I think, as a stage two consciousness, this kind of modern disbelief which is uh, boiling everything down to scepticism and trying to s say, well, look, the people are simply projecting their own forces out there. There's nothing out there at all. And Cambridge and Oxford, you know, uh, Richard Dawkins and all that sort of stuff. Uh, the world is completely rational and ancient people are completely irrational. So Jung's saying that doesn't work. In the second stage, the kind of Richard Dawkins stage, the dark figures of, of the, the night religion are regarded as morbid figments of fantasy arising from disturbed or infantile minds. Last Sunday night there was a show on ABC TV about Dawkins and he's always putting this particular point of view across. It's also on this Sunday night too at 9.30 on Channel 2, the second part of that series. He's fascinating for me, Richard Dawkins, because he's like the revenge of stage two. 
He's, you know, he's saying that stage two consciousness really wants to be in charge and to, and it feels it's losing its its hold, it's losing its grip because we're in a postmodern, we're in a post-rational phase now, and things, systems of thought like Jung's are actually very much in demand today, whereas they weren't so much in Jung's time, because Jung was writing during a period of high modernism when science and rationality was the arbiter, were the arbiters of truth. So um, it's, it's really interesting that just at the point where we move out of stage two thinking, as I think we're doing at the moment, that the Dawkins-like characters come along and tell us what's what and try to sort of re-situate re the, the model of reality. Now, what is this third stage we're heading into? It's very puzzling. And this is what bothered me as a boy growing up in Alice Springs because um, I could feel that the Aboriginal people were onto something, but I, I couldn't pretend to be Aboriginal myself and I couldn't adopt their mythology. I couldn't adopt their spirituality. I couldn't see the spiritual forces in the land as they saw them. In fact, if I did that, that would have been quite phony on my part. More than phony, it would have been appropriating their spirituality to myself, which of course, education and political correctness and so on, and cultural sensitivity tells us we can't simply appropriate uh, the religions of ancient peoples and pretend that, that um, they, are, they are ours. I see glimpses of this third way of viewing things, particularly in the biology of Rupert Sheldrake in particular. If anyone's interested in biology, Rupert Sheldrake is your man. And in physics, of course, David Bohm is the key to this, and particularly his book called The Implicate Order, which I haven't got time tonight to go into, and nor am I qualified as a physicist. So I read David Bohm and Rupert Sheldrake as, as uh, an amateur, entirely amateurish kind of relationship with biology and physics. But it seems like these new models of reality are, are coming up and they remarkably accord with Jung's understanding of the, the nature of reality. We clearly today stand on the brink of a new dispensation where we become receptive again to the transpersonal forces of the earth and the world but we urgently need new symbolic systems and language in order to situate that new understanding and that new post-rational thought. Now, I work in a university which is locked in to stage two thinking. It's absolutely locked right in there. And so when I start talking about the forces of the land and the spirits Naturally enough, the only way that a lot of my colleagues can see me is as a regression to stage one thinking. In other words, that they don't have a paradigm to see that there can be a post-rational worldview. If I start talking about archetypes or gods or forces or cosmic forces, they just think I've gone, you know, just bananas and that I've regressed and pretending I'm an Aboriginal in a white man's body, that type of thing. And that, of course, is notoriously called the New Age. The New Age is an interesting term, isn't it? Because it's, in a sense, a, that old way of thinking coming back again. 
and as somebody said, uh, Neville Drury said, it's so old, it's new again. <laughs> you know, that's what's new about the so-called new age. But the new age is, while easily made fun of, Jung thinks it's an important cultural symptom of our time. One of my students last week at La Trobe wrote an interesting essay where she said that the New Age is like the Macca's shop front for the new spirituality. The Macca's, it's where you get your burgers, where you get your fast food for the new spirituality. But that behind that shop front there's a whole lot else going on in society and rationalists and scientists like the Dawkins variety shouldn't simply judge everything as lunatic simply because there's a shop front there which perhaps is reducing things to rather simplistic forms. So although the New Age claims Jung as its guide and inspiration, and it certainly does that in virtually every book I've read on the New Age, Jung himself would not be interested in the New Age, ironically, if he were alive today. He'd be embarrassed by it because he'd see it as a regression to, to stage one thinking where people are not viewing these forces metaphorically and symbolically, but are actually taking them literally. And Jung would see that as Freud would, this is, this is where Jung and Freud are actually in the same camp, would see that as a regression, going back to a realm of superstition. So our forward movement has to be with eyes open to reason, but also receptive through intuition to the interiority of the world, or the idea of the anima mundi. So the third stage is not just the irrational or the rational, but some synthesis of the rational and the irrational together is, I think, where we're headed. And Jung does fit in that new paradigm, which hasn't actually arrived yet. And I think that's why Jung has so much difficulty in the universities, because Jung, too, is seen as a regression to stage one thinking by most anthropologists and sociologists and psychologists too. Now Jung predicted that science, and he singled out physics in particular because of course he had a relationship, strong personal relationship with Wolfgang Paul Pauli and also Jung and Einstein were buddies and they used to meet by the, the Lake Zurich there and apparently this is a part of Jung's life that's yet to be written really about the relationship that he had, uh, the ideas uh, that Einstein and Jung shared. What I think they were fascinated by, each of them, was that although Jung was a psychologist and Einstein a physicist, they both seemed to be talking about the same things, except Einstein was looking at matter and Jung was looking at psyche. So there's work being done on this at the moment in North America and in, in Zurich as well, about the kinds of uh, conversations that Jung and Einstein might have been having back in the 20s and 30s about the nature of reality. Now stage two thinking, and Dawkins as I say represents a classic case of this, You'd, stage two thinking is myth busting. You come in, the man of science, usually a man, sometimes a woman but usually a man, comes in and reveals religions and myths to be completely illusory. You know, and they go around with a pin, just pricking everybody's balloon, saying, you thought you had a, something, a, a, a take on truth, did you? Well, just bang. <laughs> and see, there's nothing there. There's actually, it's all just hot air. And that's the stage two thinking, and that's what 
Uh, it had to happen because with the rise of science and the rise of the Enlightenment, we had to have this happen. But unfortunately, it's gone on far too long now and has become very, very destructive and is taking away our soul and our spirit. And we have to stop pricking balloons and start sort of admiring them and saying, what an interesting balloon. I'd like one of them too. So uh, we're in a transitional phase at the moment. And in, during a transitional phase, we're not sure exactly where we stand. First, there's spirit. Then there's no spirit, only reason and science. And then there's spirit again. That's the story of Western civilization, it seems to me. Stage two thinking feels besieged on either side, protecting itself from a past that it continues to destroy and a future that it attempts to fend off. Any genuine attempts to be post-rational or post-modern enchantment, as Derrida called it in one of his essays, are quickly dismissed as regressions to the past, illusions or escapes from reality. Hence, Jung continues to be berated and undermined by the university system, since his post-rational thinking is seen as pre-rational. We're not yet able to distinguish, as St. Augustine we say, would say, we lack discernment. We lack discernment. And ironically, I said before, Jung is championed by the New Age and reviled by the university for the same reason. He's viewed by both as a champion of irrationality, but he isn't. He's actually into a post-rational state. So Jung is definitely not saying, to come back to my main theme, I was, that's to simply give you a kind of a thumbnail sketch about where I think we are at the moment. But Jung is definitely not saying that the phonic powers of the earth are merely figments of a disturbed mind, which is how Richard Dawkins would say they are, or Sigmund Freud would say they are, for instance. Since stage two thinking cannot conceive of phonic powers except as vestiges of archaic minds or disturbed minds, he will be seen as a throwback to former times. Now the movement from stage two to stage three thinking consists largely of a re-evaluation of the role of symbol, imagination and image. While many of our projections, inverted commas, are stage, as stage two imagines them, are, are personal, neurotic, unrelated to reality, put on the landscape by our own anthropomorphic tendencies, we will have to do a lot of work to sort out the personal projections from the archetypal ones that tell us about the nature of the real, rather than veil it with a cloak of illusions. So that's part of the work of stage three thinking, to separate the personal projection from the archetypal content. This is a difficult task, but it's already underway, I think, in post-Jungian and, and indeed post-Freudian discourses, where illusions are being separated from myths, pathologies are being separated from cosmic visions, and regressions are being separated from genuine prophecies of the future. So changes will take place in the universities and the educational systems, and changes can be detected already, I think, in certain quarters, particularly through postmodernism, where the subjective dimension is being taken more seriously than it was under modernism. Under modernism, 
an objective approach to reality was seen as true, and the subjective was bracketed out. In the, in the modern era, you couldn't even say I in your university essays, because you had to be so objective that you couldn't even write in your own subjective position. So things are changing, and thanks, I think, to postmodernism, we are softening up the uh, old-fashioned view of reality and opening up an interior dimension and giving that interiority a sense of reality and purpose. Now, commentators refer to the way the land moulds its inhabitants by natural elements. Changes in point of view are especially taking place where the views of indigenous people are being respected by sensitive historians and anthropologists, particularly in new world countries such as Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and the United States. So my concern is not to validate every mad or wild assertion that spirits inhabit the earth. I simply wish to open our minds to the possibility that earth breathes its own pneuma, pneuma, that marvellous Greek word about spirit, pneuma, and that at least some of what cultural critics refer to as the personification of the land or anthropomorphism, that is to say projecting our own human attributes onto inanimate landscapes and objects, that some of that could be a sensitive and true response to forces actually emanating from the land itself. I've got a colleague at La Trobe, Alison Ravenscroft, actually, who's working on exactly this kind of project at the moment. She's rereading what used to be seen as the projections of the mind as the possibility that they are actually forces there and that stage two thinking has, in a sense, reduced those forces down to, to, to mere projections of the personal realm and therefore seen as pathological and in need of being withdrawn rather than experienced as a part of reality. So in other words, what I'm suggesting at this point in my talk is two-way traffic between mind and earth. Mind impacts on earth, yes. There are projections from our mind onto landscape. But stage one and three have in common a receptivity to traffic going the other way. There are forces emanating from earth coming and impacting on our minds, on our subjectivities, and perhaps even visiting us in our dreams. This has been one of my own personal preoccupations. I'm always dreaming about Central Australia. I had one, another dream of that last night. I just am obsessed with it. And it's because having grown up there and, and growing up in a part of the Australian landscape where the land really does speak very strongly, even quite, even quite sort of almost normally insensitive people can walk around Central Australia and feel that there's something there and there's something, and there's something actually speaking from the land itself. So two-way traffic between the mind and earth is what I'm trying to suggest. Jung was interested in a process in new world countries like Australia and America and New Zealand called colonisation in reverse. This is the next part of my talk. Colonisation in reverse. Now, he never came to Australia, but he did make several trips to North America. 
and during which he observed the ways in which former Europeans, now called Americans, inhabit that new space, inhabit that land. And he intuited that the land itself had somehow claimed its new inhabitants. The colonizers had in turn been colonized and he uses the word indigenization. There's been an indigenization process going on in terms of the Europeans who lived in North America and now call themselves Americans. So this mysterious process about how the colonizers have been colonized by the place they inhabit, this appealed to Jung's paradoxical understanding of psychological process given that the colonizing project was the aim of an heroic ego coming from overseas and putting up the British flag and saying, this is now part of Britain. You know, what a fantasy is that? It's extraordinary. And the opposite process was happening, colonization in reverse, operating in an unconscious level and not even on the horizon of consciousness. Jung says that the colonization in reverse would be felt firstly by mad people, people who are mad, some of us maybe, I don't know. People who are poets, poets will pick it up because they're the sensitive ones, and novelists. And then it would be theorized by cultural theorists and philosophers. And then the academics would get hold of it and turn it into a system. And then the fifth stage would be it would all die because uh, having been so ironed out by academia, it would lose all, uh, all its original energy again. But I think we're still at the stage of mad people and poets. Not that I wish to suggest that people, poets are mad, but both have access to the unconscious, according to Jung's theory. That's why some poets are often a bit unhinged, crazy writers and so on. They're a bit unhinged because they're actually close to the unconscious. So if you're close to the unconscious, you're going to pick up this counter process taking place. Now let me give you an example of this. The colonizing ego thinks that the new world nation is new. It's called the new world. We, we are so presumptuous that we call Australia a new country. It's not new. It's, uh, you know, the early uh, pioneers here called it virgin territory, terra nullius, the empty land. Now what a fantasy is that? Terra nullius literally means an empty place. Now this proved to be a disastrous illusion uh, of the colonizing powers, which had overlooked the fact that the land, vast in size and without visible monuments, the Aboriginal people didn't build libraries and schools and universities and town halls, therefore it was deemed to be empty. But it was possessed in another way, by Aboriginal dreaming stories and Aboriginal dreaming tracks and dreaming trails. And there have been many sensitive artists and poets and writers, sculptors, architects too, who've been very interested in the way Australia has been formally possessed and imagined by the indigenous people, rather than just declaring it to be terra nullius. Now the Australian National Anthem, which I personally despise, in the Australian National Anthem, which most of us hate, let's face it, we sing the country is young and free. But it's not young. In fact, the Aboriginal people is the oldest continual culture in the world, even older than cultures 
like the Kalahari Bushmen in Africa. It's not free either. It's not free for either, uh, either white people or black people or other people from <coughs> Asia. Numerous works of Australian litera literature and visual art have exploited this opposition between an ego that's unaware of the land and that's actually kind of overlooking the land and the ancient indigenous culture that has been ignored or forgotten or misunderstood. There can be no more perfect example of a psychic system at war with itself, with the ego seizing control and the ancient underlying reality having little or no regard for the ego's designs than Australia with its Aboriginal soul and its European overlay or European ego or persona. Eventually, the earth makes its presence felt through various cultural disturbances. This is Jungian theory, isn't it? If the ego doesn't allow the other into itself, it will be forcibly and violently overturned by what has been repressed. And that, of course, is classic Freudian theory, the return of the repressed. So it's quite on the cards and not surprising, actually, to find so much Australian literature and film about the fact that the ego's designs in this country get continually overturned by cosmic forces beyond our control. Think, of, for instance, of the Peter Weir film, Picnic at Hanging Rock, or another Peter Weir film, The Last Wave, which is even more dramatic, about the way the land actually reclaims its sovereignty, reclaims its primordial, and in fact, those girls in Picnic at Hanging Rock become seen as sacrificial victims of the Earth Mother, the Earth which actually reclaims those girls dressed in white. It's like they're, 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 they're almost on a marriage ceremony. They're, they're about to be married to death. They're married to eternity and they're never seen again in Joan Lindsay's novel and in Peter Weir's marvellous masterpiece based on Joan Lindsay's novel. So this is kind of now part of Australian mythology that the world that we reject, the actual primordial underlay, the earth itself, eventually reclaims. And of course, that's the myth underpinning the Lindy Chamberlain story too. In the outback of Australia, right near Ayers Rock, Uluru, Katatuta, a dingo arises, the indigenous dog, and the dingo's got my baby. That's another part of this particular myth that um, <coughs> the earth that is reviled and not noticed ends up seeking its revenge. And I think that's why we were all obsessed with the Lindy Chamberlain story for so many years, because there's something going on in it that speaks to the Australian psyche. It's something about the fact that if we don't sacrifice to the land, we will be sacrificed by the land. And that's the dynamic at work. If we sacrifice to the land, I think we'd have a better culture. But if we, because we don't, we have to be sacrificed involuntarily and drawn in, and hence the teeth of the dingo devouring the, the poor baby, and then finding the matinee jacket you know, under a bush at the foot of uh, Uluru is a classic archetypal image for what I think Australia represents at the moment, this kind of lack of connection. So, Jung's depth psychology became aware of a collective dimension 
through symptoms that disturb the conscious sphere, not just personal disturbances, which is what interested Freud, but collective disturbances. And where there are collective disturbances, that's when the artists and the filmmakers and the people who build culture get onto these things and create blockbuster movies based on these particular archetypal themes. But as I say, if you run through uh, Australian cinema, this theme keeps cropping up all the time that the biggest player in the Australian context is the land itself. The humans are secondary. Instead of humans with an earth background, it's actually the earth that's the dominant player and the humans are almost background to the earth. Jung was fascinated by this conflict and how it's worked out in terms of new world cultures. As I said before, he didn't visit Australia, which would have given him much material to develop his depth psychology of nations. But his eye was firmly fixed upon what he called the American experiment. He wrote in 1927, and I quote, the greatest experiment in the transplantation of a race in modern times is the colonization of the North American continent by a predominantly Germanic population. Germanic, because the, the British, of course, are part of the Anglo-Saxon Germanic race as well. So Jung said that we could expect, and I quote, all sorts of variations of the original racial type. How this had come about was mysterious. There were climatic and environmental conditions which would impact on the American psyche, but Jung was not thinking of these external environmental factors, but he was thinking of something psychic. Let me read you one of his quotes. At all events, he says, the Yankee type is formed, and this is so similar to the Indian type that on my first visit to the Middle West of the United States, while watching a stream of workers coming out of a factory, I remarked to my companion that I should never have thought there was such a high percentage of Indian blood in American people. My American companion replied, laughing, that he was willing to bet that in all these hundreds of men coming out of this factory, there would not be found a single drop of Indian blood in any of them. That was many years ago when I had no notion of the mysterious Indianization of the American people. So that's what he wrote in 1927. Now such discussions about blood and soil were unfortunately attractive to the Nazis since their very slogan was Blut und Boden, blood and soil. That was Hitler's slogan. And it was the slogan of the National Social Socialist Party. Hitler believed that the people of German descent or blood had the right to live on German soil, but those without this blood did not. Jung's intuitions about land and people had placed him in a dangerous and sensitive area, especially because he kept using the term race all the time during these reflections. And I don't know if you noticed, but in my discourse, I never talk about race. I just talk about consciousness or people or cultures. So understandably, after Jung had come up with these theories in the 1920s, the Nazis were very, very interested in them and had developed Jung's theories. By the time Hitler rose in the 1930s, they were all apprised of Jung's theories about how mind and earth impact on each other 
and how earth claims the mind and how the mind in turn impacts on the earth. So Jung's reflections arising as they did before the Nazis had even come up with their Blut und Boden idea, Jung's reflections have an air of innocence to them as he was genuinely fascinated by the way in which land could make its claim on the psyche. Now Jung is forever trying to imagine why the unconscious life of the migrant sinks, that's his word, sinks to the level of the indigenous earth. <laughs> why the unconscious life of the migrant sinks to the level of the indigenous earth. In addition to this metaphor of the psyche needing to set down roots in the soil, he's intrigued by a notion that comes from Australia. And Jung quotes this in about five different essays. He read with great interest the anthropological writings of Spencer and Gillen, and they set off from Adelaide, South Australia, and moved up to Central Australia, and of course tried to also explore right up uh, to the top end. So Spencer and Gillen are very big names where I grew up in Central Australia. Uh, Mount Gillen is the mount that I was um, lived near, named after this anthropologist. And drawing on this uh, anthropological work, Jung finds their interest in Aboriginal religion and spirituality to be very, very important. And Jung says, and I quote, certain Aboriginal Australians assert that one cannot conquer foreign soil because in it there dwell strange ancestor spirits who reincarnate themselves in the newborn. There is a great psychological truth in this. The foreign land assimilates its conqueror. Isn't that incredible? And I have actually met personally Aboriginal people who do say that we think we've come here to conquer the land, but they, they laugh. They said, what you don't know is that by living on this land and being born on this land, you are actually going to be, you will reincarnate our ancestor spirits. You think you'll be living your own lives, but you actually be living our ancestral lives. They will inhabit your bodies in the same way that they inhabit ours. And I could never make any sense of this because as a, a Westerner with a Western education, I didn't understand really what the Aboriginal people were saying. But with Jung, you can actually get almost halfway into understanding what they're going to say. In another essay, he quoted these Aboriginal people who were the Pitandjara tribe from Central Australia again. And he says, certain very primitive tribes are convinced that it's not possible to usurp foreign soil because the children born there would inherit the wrong ancestor spirits who dwell in the trees, the rocks and the water of the new country. There seems to be some subtle truth in this primitive intuition, <laughs> says Jung. You know, he's going, hmm, you know, scratching his beard. There seems to be some subtle truth in this primitive intuition. That's what I love about Jung, is that, is that he's so open. He's not like Freud, who just says, oh, that's just nonsense, you know, that's absolute garbage, infantile thinking. Jung is always open to the possibility that the world is much more mysterious than we think it is. Now, Jung himself had primitive intuitions about how the world impacts on the psyche. The very primitive tribes are perhaps personifications of Jung's own very primitive thoughts. And he remains frustrated by his primitivity since it prevents him from communicating 
this dimension of how the earth impacts on the psyche in a scientific way. <clears throat> in a lecture he gave in New York in 1932, Jung said, the Indianization of the Americans is not just a joke. There is something in it that can hardly be denied. It may seem mysterious and unbelievable to some, yet it's a fact that can be observed in other countries just as well. I'm not sure what other countries he had in mind, thinking maybe Australia. Uh, man can be assimilated by a country, he says. Man can be assimilated by a country. And uh, knowing, of course, that Jung, writing in the 1920s and 30s, uh, wasn't uh, beneficial a beneficiary of the feminist point of view, which would never use the word man in that context either. He says, there's nothing miraculous about this. It's always been so. The conqueror overcomes the old inhabitants in the body, but succumbs to his spirit. The conqueror gets the wrong ancestor spirits, the primitives would say. I like this picturesque way of putting it, says Jung. It is pithy and expresses every conceivable implication. Let me just summarise some, some of these points. What I found is that Jung kind of ran into sand on this one, like as if he was onto something, but you know, his life was so complex and he was so busy doing mainly clinical work that the impact of the earth on the psyche was something that actually got kind of relegated a bit. To find out his late thoughts on this, you actually have to read his letters. In his letters it says, and I quote, oh, this is a letter to Emile Egli of 15th of September 1943. Emile Egli, who I don't know, had sent Jung his book called The Swiss in Their Landscape. And it's about how the land impacts on the Swiss psyche unconsciously. Uh, Jung says, many thanks for kindly sending me your book, The Swiss in Their Landscape. I entirely agree with the pages you have marked. <laughs> this author must have said, read this page, read that page, etc. You know, like post-it notes or something. The more so as my thoughts have often moved along similar lines. At one time, I related the idiosyncrasies of Paracelsus to his early environment and also dropped similar hints in my answer to Kesseling's expose of Switzerland. And this is the key sentence. I am deeply convinced of the unfortunately still very mysterious relation between man and landscape, but I hesitate to say anything about it because I could not substantiate it rationally or scientifically. Yours sincerely, Jung. That's 1943. So Jung went as far as he could with this intuition about the way the earth impacts on land and reached a kind of a dead end or fizzled out. The invitation is now for those who came after him to try to reach this kind of third level of understanding which is neither the superstitious and supernatural position of stage one thinking nor the, uh, the intense and myth-busting rationality of stage two thinking but a kind of a third stage where we can be more receptive to the symbolic dimension and the way it impacts on the psyche, remembering the paracelsus um, phrase that the greater part of the soul is outside the body. Thank you very much for, for your patience.
hope you enjoyed David's talk exploring the way the land we live in makes a claim on the human psyche. In order to work with these powerful forces inherent in the earth, we need to become more open to symbols, images and imagination as messengers from the archetypal realm, from those forces much larger than us. With the image of the anima mundi, we note that soul exists beyond the bounds of the human body, shaping our experiencing and understanding. While we might imagine ourselves in control of the land, as Jung pointed out, humanity can be assimilated by country. Thank you for listening and please visit us at www.jungsocietymelbourne.com or have a look at our Facebook page.